something I wanted to kind of uh, get back to, and I, I know you have a video on this about kind of, I think the title is uh, Weaponizing Your Own Personal Story is, how much do you kind of insert your own life and your own experiences into your writing? I know I like to kind of disguise uh, my own personal stories and feelings and people in my, in my writing. I do it all the time. I, I always like to tell people, like, you need to kind of have experiences because it kind of helps you inform your writing as well. I, I, I don't want to say like, oh, go and, uh, you know, like do drugs and stuff. Like, don't do that. But you should live a little. And uh, so can you talk a little bit about how you write your, your personal self into the story or your own experiences? You kind of were touching on it a little bit. Um, there's two kind of compartments for that. When it comes to writing a story, there's got to be a reason why you. Why you? Why the story? Why now? So if I ask you guys, so the movie you're working on the moment, what, in, in, in 25 words or so, what's it about? It's about a, a woman that is essentially becomes the new obsession of this stalker and her night of trying to survive, survive the night, essentially, in a, to keep it short and simple. So it's, a, um, so it's a woman who's, what kind of woman is she? Right. So she's like a strong woman that's desired by everyone. And she has her own personal struggles and demons that she has to kind of overcome while also overcoming the reality of, you know, men always kind of coming after her. Every, all everyone's kind it's kind of like she's a magnet to, for all the characters coming after her. And it's kind of like a journey of her night surviving through all these obstacles. Yeah. Kind of trying to survive the misogyny of men um, in a more general description of that. Okay. And what, does she have a job? Does she, what is her role? Yeah, she's, a, she's a student. Uh, she's a, a college student. So she's a college student who is stalked by a psychopathic type. Of, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Killer, okay, yeah. Okay. So essentially. Okay. So that's the story. Why this story? Why you? Well, I, I mean, there's, uh, to me, the main theme of the story is that kind of love drives you crazy. And it's something that is personal and connects with so many things in my life. It's like, dude, if you, if love hasn't driven you crazy, I don't know if you've ever loved. So yeah, because Tom's me- definitely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and a little scary this, looking. <laughs> is this twisted love? Or I mean, in, so, in some ways, yes, and then in some ways, it's it's beautiful, and then and and other like it, it's kind of it kind of is expressed through each different kind of character. So uh, the for me, there is a, a sort of a disconnect between this stalker movie and the theme that you're talking about here, which is about love but you know it might be that they absolute there's a way of entangling them um because normally the theme is expressed in the journey of the main character so there might be a way that you could there might be a way that you've already got this story which right and it's also more of an ensemble it kind of becomes an ensemble in a way so it the the main idea the our main kind of elevator pitch was that we were trying to do a pretty in pink meets halloween Okay, with, that's a, so that gives me a completely different canvas to what y- your your pitch gives me. That right. that's kind of you know that's yeah. I mean that's is that screen territory, but it's not a comedy, or is it? Pretty in Pink's a romantic comedy. Are you telling me yeah, this is a romantic? This is a if John Hughes wrote a stalker movie, this would be it. Yes, that's what we that's what we tried to go and accomplish. It is a ro- dark comedy horror essentially. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, in that basis, then you might be able to bring in that sort of personal story. That's interesting about your, your take on, 
on Twisted Love. Um, I think for for many people, it's it might even be just a theme. Like, you know, if I wrote a Roman movie, I've never been to, you know, Britannia. I've never been to, but, you know, there might be a way that I could, uh, you know, talk about the character or the theme or whatever. But right, I think, exactly. I, um, but the, the strongest manifestation of this is where you are finding what you're good at. You understand as a writer what you want to be known as or as a filmmaker. And right. then you figure out what only you can do, what only you can bring to the table. So I had a client, he's just actually, he's had an incredible year. He sent me a bunch of scripts. You know, I do 10 page podcasts on scripts and he, he sent me a couple of log lines and his portfolio of work was all over the shop. There was an animated kind of Pixar dog movie. There was a, a, you know, an action comedy. And then I'm reading his bio and this guy is a bomb disposal expert. He's run intelligence operations, <laughs> hunting down Russian hackers. And I said to him, listen, the dog movie's good, but if you really want to score as a writer, what only you can do is write about bomb disposal, that world and the world of espionage and the intelligence world and hackers. So I recommend that you start writing stories in the space. So that's the strategy I gave him. His mm -hmm. script about a bomb disposal expert has just, uh, in, it's just final, it's one of the finalists in the fade-in uh, Channel 21 competition, I think. It might be the famous, the Channel 21 and the Script Angel one. In the last year, he's got to four or five semis and he's been getting very close and getting on the radar of showrunners in the UK. Because remember, not only is he a decent writer, he's an expert in this world that only he can, can bring all his knowledge to the table. And you put him in a writer's room, my goodness, is he going to earn his money? So right. I advised him to work out what he wants to stop writing around. And by the way, his dog movie, I think, is, is the quarter finalist in the final draft. <laughs> contest. So you say, well, why Wonderful. can't I write the dog movie and I'd be a bomb disposal expert? Well, you might be able to, but imagine if he wins in the dog movie thing and he has a meeting with a manager and the manager says, okay, what else you've got? Have you got anything else in this space? Well, I got this bomb disposal movie. Well, <laughs> I, right. I'm confused. Yeah. Where's the branding? And I think that uh, more than anything, what I do with my clients is I try and help them figure out what their brand is. And I think all filmmakers need a brand. And that, that sounds too salesy and, you know, it might stick in the throat like, I'll do what I want. If you want to break yeah. in, you've got to become known for something. And this, right. is what, this is one of my passions. And certainly for Lee Lawson, it's working out very nicely. So find out what you can do. And, you know, you look at John Hughes. He, had, he knew a certain world, which he was an expert in. You think of those... You know, those, those, that, that world of all those kids, you know, Barry Levinson, um, where was he? Was it all the stuff like Diner? Which city was that? Was it Baltimore or somewhere like that? Oh, it's like a made up city, I think. Or, well, you know, for John Hughes, are you talking? I'm, you... Yeah, I'm sorry, Barry, Barry, am I getting this right? The guy wrote Diner and all that stuff. I think it was Baltimore. I might, but you know, there are filmmakers who come from certain. Yeah, Barry Levinson, yes. Barry Levinson, right. So. Yes. Baltimore, you're right, you're right. They get a flag and they put it down in a chunk of, of the corner of this playing pitch. And he says, that's mine. This is my story territory. And I think ideally as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, we all need to pick up our flags and say, right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in here. Absolutely. And I, I think one of my big fears was I, my, is my, a strive for just authenticity uh, in my yeah. writing. 
And that's where I kind of maybe harp on like get it, writing what you know in a sense is because I don't want to essentially just be a fraud. I don't know. It's weird. Maybe it's like maybe that's a, a not a legitimate fear, but no, of course it's it just, is. Of course yeah. it is. If, if, and if you're writing authentically about only things you know, it will strike a chord. So, you know, it's difficult. One of the hardest things is you know that there are genres that sell. If you, are, you, you don't sound like you're genre, well, you are genre filmmakers. If you're, if you're selling a cross genre, you know, Pretty in Pink meets Halloween, you, you are steeped <laughs> in genre. Those are two very different genres, which shouldn't go together, but could go together just nicely. But yeah, if you, it, the way that it works as a screenwriter, not as a filmmaker, as a screenwriter, is you're mm -hmm. right an espionage spec. Maybe it doesn't sell, but you're mm -hmm. now on the list of somebody who can deliver a thriller or an espionage. So when a studio options a book and they need to interview writers and hear pitches, they'll come to you because you're known to delivering and being interested in the espionage world. So that's why it's so important why you decide what you want to be known as. If you're a screenwriter, if you're a filmmaker, then you can be a lot more sort of, you know, you can bounce around a bit more. And many, yeah. you know, look at the Farrelly. Was, who's the guy who did um, Green Book? Is that oh, yeah, yeah, that is one of the Farrelly brothers. Yeah, yes. the Farrelly brothers. I don't know which one it was. Yeah. So, so, the guy, so the guy who does those, that filthy sex comedy with Cameron Diaz's hair, bounces and yeah, does Green something about Mary. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Who knew? <laughs> So you could say... I mean, Todd, Todd Phillips, just recently, he made Joker. Hangover and the Joker couldn't be two more opposite movies. Or Chernobyl, too. Yeah, and look at, the, look at the writer. Look at Craig Mazin. He mm -hmm. was writing Scary Movie 3 or whatever it was. He wrote um, you know, a couple of those comedies. I think he wrote on The Hangover. Who yes. knew that he could write Chernobyl? Well, the world does yeah. now, and he will now be sent anything, really. I mean, he's, he's, on, he's at the top of the world now but he's created more space for his career. But first, when he got hired, was doing these comedies in that space. And then once you've got, yeah. then you can break out of your pigeonhole. So I advise all my clients is actually embrace the pigeonhole, stick your head in it and get used to it and own it. So where are you pigeonholed? Well, I, my, I, I realized that my only eye was only I had been woken up by a truck bomb and only I was fascinated, well, many people are fascinated by terrorism, counter-terrorism, the espionage game. But when I was blown up by, you know, I got blown out of bed and my house was taken out by that bomb, I wasn't particularly interested in geopolitics before that moment. But afterwards, I wanted to know why these people had, had almost, you know, taken out me. And so I became yeah. obsessed with espionage, uh, the intelligence business. And obviously I know a lot about, I've read a lot about what happened in, in Northern Ireland. So I think, you know, espionage was certainly my bag. I say was because I'm now, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm more of a, a sort of player coach than a player. I devote most of my time to helping other writers. I consider myself, I was a blue collar writer. You know, I wasn't an A-lister. And I, I'm always speaking in a past tense here because I've transitioned in my head to, you know, to helping other writers. And I started teaching, I've taught at some of the film schools but I'm more interested in making films, be they on YouTube or for brands or using the muscles, the storytelling muscles that I developed over 17 years in London and Hollywood. And, but I, you know, if I go back to filmmaking, uh, it could go be, well, one thing that has been strongly suggested is 
uh, literary management because when it, like uh, I did a, a review of Incel, which is another stalker movie mm-hmm. of my client, Christopher Berger, and I put out the video and I've got like 6,000 industry connections on LinkedIn where the real action is, by the way. Forget about Facebook. All the money on the world is in LinkedIn. And the moment filmmakers realize oh, it, wow. that will be the beginning of a bonanza where, you know, in every world, you look at Airbnb, Uber, these companies have disrupted the business model. And I think the agency, the literary agency business is ripe for disruption by going directly to the money. You know, you, I, I don't see, the, and look, we've, for the last, I'm a member of the WGA, and for the last 12 months, there haven't been any agents except the ones that signed the, um, the deal on packaging. And the writers continue to write without their agents. Yeah, wow. of course. And I think that video, the writers, where it's going is that if writers can get savvy about content creation and making video pictures and telling stories, they can reach producers in a way that sending them a, an email, read my script, is not going to do it. And I've seen some fantastic video pictures by people who are writer filmmakers. You guys, you could, you know, the way you could make trailers and you could present your story. And I think there is the opportunity to create something like that on a platform. But that kind of digital literary management is something I'd be interested in. Working with writers, I always already work a lot with writers. I like writers. I much prefer them to producers. They're my brothers and sisters, you know. <laughs> I feel a kinship. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and exactly. I want to protect them. And I've seen a lot of bad behavior, a lot of yes. bad behavior. And yeah. in another life, I probably would have been an entertainment attorney representing writers and <laughs> fighting their corners, you know? Yeah. So, but I'm very happy doing, uh, doing what I'm doing at the moment. But um, yeah, so uh, what was the question? What oh. would I become known <laughs> as? What would I become known as? Yeah. Yes. Now there is one project. This is unfinished business. I've developed a source inside British Special Forces who ran a secret unit in Iraq. So yeah, that's a story oh, awesome. that, that um, I want to write next year, but not because I want to have a, TV, a career sort of writing screenplays. I think my, that's a specific unfinished business that I want to do for pleasure and uh, for the crack cocaine of it, Tom. But uh, yes, yes. But I, I, I've spent too long trapped in my imagination and the world of imaginary characters. I'm just enjoying meeting people like you guys. Look, as a writer, oh, you know, we're you. talking, we're, we're communicating and making films, mm-hmm. I think, is the biggest gift. It, it's even more of a buzz to see something on screen that you've shot. So I've had stuff. I remember I went to the first premiere of, it was a screening of, I, I worked, we did a rewrite on Tristan and Isolde which was directed by Kevin Reynolds, who did Prince of Thieves and all the rest of it. And it's with James Franco. It, it's, you know, it's like... A, yeah, I remember the film. Yeah, well, we did a rewrite on that, production rewrite on that. And I remember sitting down, I thought, this is the moment. They are going to speak our lines of dialogue. And I, I believed that it would be transformational. And I would somehow feel like a validated human being that once my work was up on screen and you know what? I felt nothing. I actually came down with three days of man flu. It was such a disappointment. It was just, (laughs) I thought I was on a false crusade. And yet there are things that I've done on YouTube and the interaction with an audience, which is far more rewarding than anything I did in the fictional world. So I think, I think everyone should look into making their stuff 
if they can, or certainly figuring out what the five visual elements are and understanding lighting. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of also the mission statement of our podcast in a lot of ways is we we knew nothing about making movies. And we were like, we just loved watching movies and we loved movies. And it was like, equipment isn't that expensive anymore. Let's just spend some money, get some people together and and do this. And we just jumped in completely in the deep end. And now we're in post-production editing the film and who knows where it goes from there. But it's like, it's it's an infectious thing, the collaboration and... And like you said, like even that on a smaller scale, when you're shooting on the day on set and they're reading your lines or they're they're doing the delivery and you're like, oh, it's perfect. They're actually nailing it exactly how I'm imagining Are it. Are they doing it much better than what you imagine too? Right. Or way worse. You know, shit uh, happens. Well, yeah, yeah, there's that too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, yeah, it's so exciting. And I, I kind of want to dive into uh, your YouTube a bit. What When did you finally realize like this is, you said there was that break where you were like, you need to find something to do, but are you editing your own videos? Are you? Do you have uh, people working on the videos with you or is it all just you? Can I just say one? I will answer that. I'd love to talk about this. Can yes. I just answer? You're talking about the buzz of getting something made. And Matt, my co-writer, my former co-writer, he would often say that you know, he'd be on repertory theatre and there'd be a performance. And at the end of the night, there'd be a bow and the audience would clap. And although it was transitory, it was complete, the experience. And I think one of the hardest thing in screenwriting is for you to imagine a whole movie and you've seen it you, and it doesn't get made. And probably nine out of 10 things you write will not get made. It might get you another job on another thing, which may or may not get made. But I think that's one of the hardest things to live with. These films that if you write a novel and one person reads it, then the novel has succeeded as a medium. If you write a screenplay and it doesn't get made, it's a bastard format. It hasn't actually breathed and become all it should be. So I think that's, that's one of the hardest things in screenwriting is, and that's something which, you know, the, the idea of spending six months on a script. Now I've done it for 17 years. I've done my time and Mm -hmm. six things have got made, but you know, probably another 39 haven't. And I do look back and I do think that was a lot of my life. And, you know, the ones, yes, I had an incredible adventure. And it's, it, sometimes it comes down to, you've got to enjoy the, the game. You've got to enjoy the, and I was lucky because I had a friend with me and we'd be in the trenches together and we'd do pitch meetings. And he'd say to me, you know what? I come home from Hollywood after doing 40 meetings in a week, we do 40 in a week, you know, two weeks, 80 meetings. And they'd say, how was it? And there's nothing I can tell them that will make them understand what it's like to do that. (laughs) You know, it's like going to the Olympics. If you're a screenwriter, if you're on the lot and you're pitching and I loved it, I loved it. And it's because I had Matt, that is the bond that, we had this experience together. And whilst the movies that we wrote didn't, most of them didn't get made, you know, I do have, I have had this experience. And the other things that become really important when your movies don't get made are research trips. So persuading producers 
to send you to. We went to Rio and Istanbul and Africa on the back of a truck. So that's another good scam. If you can come up with exotic stories that when you sell them, you say, well, you know, we're going to do an overland adventure about these overland tourists who get kidnapped. And yeah, we'd really like to get get the story right. Okay, we'll pay for you to go across Africa for three weeks. You know, and those are the intangibles. I got oh, some great, yeah. you know, so yeah, that's coming down to it. I think not having a performance is is a tough one. So what was so onto the YouTube? Sorry guys, I I just want Yeah, to no, say. no, it's totally fine. This is exactly what we want. So 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 the YouTube, yeah, I mean that started my yes. my son who was getting into photography. He was at uni. He said, "Dad, you should make some YouTube tutorials like Peter McKinnon." I didn't know who Peter McKinnon was. And what I mean you guys know Peter McKinnon, right? You know your YouTubers, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't know who that is. Okay. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> I well, don't well, what is interesting? This is what is interesting is that back in the day, there were probably 2,000 celebrities in the world, film, mm-hmm. music, whatever. And now there are hundreds of thousands of them, but they're only known yeah. to a small amount of people. Now, a small amount of people could be a million people. It could just be just photographers or people who make video yeah. content. But it's the sort of fracturization. That's a terrible word. It doesn't exist of, <laughs> of audiences and of these niches that there's the, the something for everyone, which is great. And so Santi said, well, why don't you make some tutorials? And I was still in what I call the selfish mode, which is I still wanted to sell some of my projects. So that my first video was my Vladimir Putin setting the, you know, the Godfather in the Kremlin, a kind of, you know, yeah. a, a kind of crime thriller about Putin. And my first video, I was trying to give, I, I gave a couple of lip services, sort of, I, I, I sort of gave some ideas of tips that you can use to write a biopic. And it's a whole topic. And I did it really badly. I mean, I could, there should be a 10 minute video just on biopics and how not to kill them. <laughs> but um, I was selfish. And if I look at the retention rate of the video where I'm actually giving things and sharing information with the audience. The retention is good. The moment I go into my pitch, it goes from sort of 40% to about 10% as people tune out. Why? Because I'm being selfish. And what I've learned, Mm -hmm. and this is for any content, the listener, the viewer is essentially selfish. They want value. And if you're selfish as well, because you're trying to promote yourself without giving value, then the relationship is going to be a failure. So I made loads of these, about three or four of these videos with some stuff in there. And he kept on saying, dad, just make a tutorial. And I I just, I don't want to teach. It's not my thing. And then the key inflection point was I had a mate who was teaching in China and I got wasted with him. And I said, oh, I can come and teach in China. And he he, he essentially (laughs) called me out on it. And before I knew it, I was in a classroom of 200 Chinese students (laughs) teaching them how to use their smartphones to make films. And, you know, and I didn't know how to, and I taught myself how to do it. And I think then I realized, hold on, teaching is the best thing in the world. In England, if you're a teacher, they say you're a mug. You know, it's a mugs game. It's, it's low, low kind of status to be a teacher. In China, it's one of the highest (laughs) kind of, to be a teacher is, you know, because they value knowledge. And then I did some teaching in a couple of the film schools. There's one in particular, I thought, and this guy came up to me after my first ever lesson. I was terrified. So I've done all this screenwriting and I'm teaching, you know, 30 students. And I, I didn't sleep for two days. I was so nervous. You know, like I 
pitched quite high profile people in Hollywood. I was more worried about these 30 film students. I don't know why. It was just because I was out of my comfort zone. And he came up to yeah. me afterwards and he goes, that was, that was incredible. And he's, have you been doing it long? I said, that's my first lesson. He says, you're a natural. And so I, yeah. I took on board that and I thought, okay. And I wanted to do more teaching at this film school. I loved it. And they had a screenwriting course and they, there's just a hierarchy where you get used as a, you know, bits and pieces. And I just thought, you know what? I, my, my classroom is YouTube. It's the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's guys who are getting through the night shift who, who want to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the, and the moment I started creating videos of value, that's when things started to take off. Not, I mean, YouTube is not really the full game. The full game is LinkedIn. That's where you can build your own audience. YouTube, okay, we're screenwriters. I'm talking to screenwriters. Mm-hmm. On LinkedIn is producers, it's agents, and all these people. If I post a video of Christopher Bergart's Incel, the Stalker movie, I can see that 10 people from creative artists have watched the video. I can see that people from the BBC have watched the video. So I'm looking at this audience thinking, I've got the numbers. I just need to figure out the algorithm to sell them stuff and promote my clients or people on the channel. So that's the long-term plan is to turn the channel into a platform for showcase, you know, like Script Shadow, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys ever read Script Shadow, the website. He reviews amateur scripts and professional scripts, but it's all text. Okay. Yeah. No, I haven't. I'm writing it down. Oh, you know, no, it's great. He's really good. A lot of people get pissed off with him. I think he's a really smart guy. Carson Reeves, that's his nom de guerre. It's not his real name. But I, I think to be the YouTube version of Script Shadow is, but I, I, you know, I think there's a lot more I can do and I want to do. But basically the bottom line with YouTube or any content is you've got to ask one question. And that question is, cui bono? Who benefits? And if you're the main beneficiary of the video, your content will fail. It's the same for what we're doing here. If this is me promoting my screenwriting consultancy and I'm plug, plug, plugging it and I'm not providing any value, then I'm being selfish. Mm -hmm. If it's you guys promoting your movie without actually giving value, then we're not creating good content. If you are teaching the audience about how you put something together in your tips, I call them trade secret videos or trade secret podcasts. Then you will get the uptake because you're delivering value. So that's some, I've learned a lot very quickly and I'm still learning every day. So that's why we don't have any listeners. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) No, but you know, I actually, Tom works in IT and I I work in academia. I work at a community college. What did you teach, Steve? Uh, I'm an instructional assistant, so I kind of just help run the art department. I work for art. Okay. Uh, I do photography, if anything. Okay. But just being around a lot of professors, and I think that's one of the reasons why your channel sticks out is you do have this natural ability to be, you're just a good instructor. And I mean, I work with a lot of professors, a lot of very smart people, and Teaching, being a really good teacher is a gift, I think. You know, there's just kind of this natural talent that some people have and some people don't. And yeah, you kind of, you, you do exude that within your, your YouTube videos. And even just talking to you right now, I mean, I just feel like I'm learning so much and I'm just engaged, you know, sticking with you every step of the way here, so. 
Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think it is Thank a vocation. You. I think I'm a much better coach. I'm a half decent screenwriter, but I'm a much better coach than I was a player. That's interesting because I feel like, do you feel like there, you have to sacrifice some ego to, to say that? Because there is almost like that, oh, the, I have to be the best screenwriter ever or something like that. Like, you, there's like, I feel like there's like a negative connotation to teaching, but I, uh, I mean, I, I completely don't buy into that at all. Like I said, we do this podcast to try to help people and to tell our story about jumping into filmmaking. Do you think there is that negative connotation towards teaching or oh, just oh, trying oh, to no, be 100%, an instructor? But I, it, it has taken me, I did it initially out of need and now mm-hmm. I do it out of choice. To give you an example, yeah. there have been people who've come to me say, oh, listen, would you be interested in rewriting? And I've recommended other writers. You know, yeah, that okay. gig was mine on the plate. And I, I haven't put myself forward to it because I know that it's three months not doing script consultancy with my audio podcast, which I love. It's not creating content. It's not shooting brand videos. It's screenwriting is, is a very jealous mistress. You have got to, you, can't, you have to commit to her or him. Sorry if it's sounding a bit sexist, but it's, you've got to be totally <laughs> and utterly devoted to it. And I, I think the one area which I haven't gone into, this is being honest here, is that it, it did wreak damage on my family life, being a, what I call a total screenwriter. In the 70s, the Dutch pioneered this form of football, soccer to you guys, total football. Well, I was a total screenwriter. I, I didn't switch it off. I, at the weekends, I'm reading. I'm going out walking with the kids and I'm thinking about plot points. Um, every single minute of my day was my obsession with my goal. Now, there's healthy obsession. I mean, you know, watching the Queen's Gambit, she's obsessed, isn't she, with chess? It's her obsession. And that's yeah, how obsessed I was with screenwriting. But, you know, as Ferris said, life goes by pretty fast. And yeah. I would advise everybody, as you said, Tom, is to remember to live and to remember to experience and remember this is make-believe. And make-believe is not real. I think if I had my time again, I think I'd want to go into documentaries or drama documentaries because I have an affinity with true stories. And there's, there's almost a, there's a higher purpose sometimes where you say, why this story? Well, it happened. And if it happened, mm-hmm. it's almost like a reason to tell it. So, um, yeah, I think that for me, teaching is, it's not teaching. I, I turned down a teaching job in Winchester University. I'd been trying to get in there for 18 months and finally they came knocking and they said, right, you've got a job. And I'd been trying to get in there and I could <laughs> talk some classes. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it now. My classroom is the world. It's you guys. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's changing the mentality of, yeah, maybe teachers are undervalued. And these courses where, you know, the students are paying I don't know, 50,000, 100,000. The teachers aren't getting that money, but they're the nope. bedrock of anything. The teachers should be developing their own brands and they should disrupt education if they can and create online courses and give what they should. I think here's the other key thing I learned about content. If it's really good content, it should, you should give it away for free and people should think I'd pay for that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I see that all the time. I feel that all the time. And what it does is it creates a reciprocity with the viewer. 
you know, I'm giving away my trade secrets here, guys. They're going to be like, you've been conning us. No, it's, this is the <laughs> truth. I'm being honest about how it works. Look, for instance, for YouTube, and it's probably the same for podcasts as well. Uh, they did some psychological research. It takes 15 minutes for the average viewer to start to identify with the presenter. So how are you going to get somebody to watch your material when it's so competitive? And the answer is you've just got to give them value for absolute value for their time that they may not like you, but the value of your content is so high that they may not empathize with you. They may not be interested in you, but they know that what they're getting is absolute gold and it's authentic. And um, after 15 minutes, then they go from being takers to actually starting to invest. And that's certainly how I feel about other YouTubers. You know, I watch a lot of YouTube and I'm looking at the people who almost like become your friends in some ways, even though they've never spoken to you. You just think of them, oh, it's my mate there, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That, that's what you want to become, I think, as a, as a YouTuber, really. Yeah, exactly. And, and to get into YouTube, so I, want, I really want to get into uh, your product, the production of your videos and mm-hmm. stuff. That, uh, I, always, I really do enjoy the editing and everything on that. Are you doing that? Uh, like, I, I don't know if you answered that or not. Is that all you? Yeah, I had to. It's one of those things. I, I had to mm-hmm. learn how to do it. And this is now I've got skills that because I forced myself to do it, now I can do it on a semi well professional level for, and you know, earn money doing it. You know, you guys are learning about filmmaking. You will have skills if you haven't already got them. It sounds like you have where you now are learning things. So I learned yeah. how to edit and learning about sound, learning about lighting. I'm still learning. I have so much more to learn. But I, I'm now looking at, the only problem is, is you do get gear acquisition syndrome where, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I've started with a hundred dollar lights and I've got my eye on a thousand dollar LED and then the sliders. And I think, well, if I had two cameras and I had one parallax at the same time, it would look like one of those masterclasses and that'd be good for my ego. So yeah, it, 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 it does become, but then equally when I was doing a, a brand video, I had a gimbal, I had I had a really good mic, I had a really good camera, I had a great lens because I'd invested in myself. So, you know, you don't need to start with a lot of gear, but I think gear does matter and editing. Here's a top tip, actually. Here we go. So these Macs cost an absolute arm and a leg, right? They're really expensive. Mm. Yeah. I built my channel on, I've only just retired it on a 2012 MacBook Pro which you can get for $300, 15 inches, $400, because it was the last one that you could, here we go, we can talk tech with Tom. He knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure you both do. <laughs> it's the last one that you could, up, you could put a terabyte in it, mm-hmm. hard drive, and upgrade the RAM to 16. And I could edit 4K on an, I can still do it. I can edit 4K on an eight-year-old machine. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, that's doable. You don't need to, and you think Fincher... He was cutting video social network on a Mac that you'd say, well, that's not fit for purpose now. Well, hold on. He, he, cut, he cut the social network on it. So you can use old tech to make new content. No, no problem. But yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, we actually use the same camera he used on the social network for our feature. And that camera is like, well, what at is the it? time what, it was about 10 years old. What is it? It was the red, it's the red one MX. Oh, you guys got red. Nice. Yeah. What kind well, of we got a really old red that's about 10 years old. And we were able to find like a pretty well put together kit for about 3000. And still to this day, I mean, I think it's just one of the best images 
out there uh, digitally until you get into the Aries. But of course, you have the like Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, which we got now. And it's interesting to just see how the technology has changed and and how things maybe go out of style. Because that Red One MX, when we had it fully rigged up, I mean, it was a good 50-pound camera. You yeah. Know? And, and, we're sh- and it's shooting HD, presumably, is it? Uh, 4K. Oh, it is 4K. I mean, what's interesting is that the I think I don't know if you know this guy Potato Jet. He's another you know filmmaker. Yes, YouTube. yeah, Potato Jet. Yeah. So he bought the cheapest Ari Alexa you can get. He got it on Craigslist for like three grand. Oh wow! I think it was the one that was used to shoot the Phantom Menace because you know George Lucas was shooting HD, not 4K. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he there's a shot he takes at Golden Hour of this. It's like an old steam train coming through the desert with this Ari Alexa that cost him three grand. And the image, the softness of the light rolling off this train and the desert and the the sky is extraordinary. Yeah. And that's $3,000. So I think a lot of the, you know, an HD on an Ari Alexa might be better than 4K on some of the cameras that I've got, you know, I'm sure it is. So yeah, the dynamic range and like the technicals, right? Like, and also lenses, right? Lenses don't really depreciate in value. No, the the, the big uh, thing you always do in photography, and I'm sure this translates into videography, is you invest in the glass. Yes. Because the camera bodies you can change up, but the glass will last a lifetime. Absolutely. I've been buying these contact Zeisses, you know, from the Germany Ooh. from the 80s and the 70s. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I haven't had the balls yet to use them in my tutorials just because... I, you know, it's quite hard to focus. I'd need to get some sort of, you know, nano nucleus. Mm-hmm. We're, we're really geeking out now. This isn't about screenwriting, but yeah, there it is. Wow. Hey, that's okay. That's okay. Hey, yeah, I know the nano nucleus. I, I, I'm with you 100% of the way. So, but all this stuff I didn't know about. Yeah. And it's like people often say that once you learn about screenwriting structure, you'll never view a movie in the same way because you can sometimes see the the levers of, okay, so this is the end of act one and there's the big midpoint and this is the dark night of the soul and everything's lost. And it's true. And I always thought, yeah, well, now I know, you know, I'm an insider. I I, I can see these films. I can deconstruct them. I had no idea how to deconstruct lighting, camera work, costume, all of that. So, you know, I was an ignorant abroad, really. And (laughs) which is why I think that you know, writers need to work more with filmmakers. And the other job title, I once got some notes off a script from an editor. And I think that editors should work with screenwriters because they're screenwriters after the fact. Right. Yeah, I think that's so important because I'm editing a short film that I shot. And within the script, I have some sequences that make a lot of sense. There's some scenes that seem very applicable within the story. But then within the edit, it's just redundant. And it's like, why do I even have this? This makes no point. I should just, so what I did is literally I compressed two scenes into one and did that within the edit and it just flows so much better. But when I was writing the script, I had, I had no foresight of that whatsoever. Yeah. And there, and there's also this thing in editing where you get what they got, right? You set yeah. out, you set out to hit a, but you somehow ended up at G somewhere and now the editor has to somehow try to get as close back to A as possible. And those points are so different sometimes. Like I said, when we were talking with the, 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 scumbag, the, the scumbag character in our film, we have to completely kind of re-edit how that's done because of the performance and what we captured. 
And so there's just so much you learn from every aspect of it. And then I also think when you go back to where it's like where you start to see the strings of the filmmaking, I think that also makes you appreciate it even more. Like and maybe it makes you dislike worse films more, but it makes you appreciate better films like even more because you're like, damn, I don't know how they pulled that off, but it's beautiful. Like one movie that always sticks out to me is Children of Men. Have you seen Children of Men? Yeah, I haven't seen it. I, only, I saw it when it came out. I haven't seen it again. Is it, It's probably worth a rewatch, isn't it? It's- yes, oh, I would absolutely. say go back and watch it and you'll be like, how the hell did they do some of these shots? Like it doesn't even seem possible. Like they must have been doing some kind of trickery and then you go and you look and it's like, yeah, they completely developed a rig that didn't exist before to get to achieve this shot. And it's yeah. like, wow, that's 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 what's that's i mean that's lovely it's so awesome it's so great and then going back to watching older films films from the 50s and 60s where it's like they had to be so inventive there was no uh we'll just green screen it right the silent era that we've been watching too right tom i mean yeah 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 Uh, just just watching ingenuity oh yeah and i mean look everyone goes on about citizen kane but if you watch the way that he's pushing the camera he invented it he's inventing all these camera moves Mm -hmm. with full ceilings and you think these guys there's, uh, when I was teaching in China, I was teaching them about vlogging and how to create an online channel. That's, you know, that's obviously something I've got some experience of. And there's this guy called Vertov, who in the, I think it's in the 20s in Russia, just invented the use of all these techniques like time lapse, um, slow motion, reverse motion. Oh, wow. Compositing, everything that is now used. And he just came up with all of it. It's called, he, he, it's, it's a silent movie called A Man with a Camera. I think, you know, there's stuff on YouTube about it. But you realize yeah. that these pioneers, they just pull it out of their whatevers, you know, <laughs> come up with it. They invent it. <laughs> well, Necessity. Then let, me, right? let me ask you about that because, I mean, one of the things for Citizen Kane and Orson Welles is they say he just didn't know any better. So he was willing to do all of these things that had never been done before. And that's kind of how he shifted that paradigm was within the ignorance. So do you think that could be a benefit within script writing? Like, because I think, I think there is, sometimes I try to be ignorant. I think there's definitely something called beginner's luck that if you don't, mm-hmm. th- th- there's one school of thought, which you should know as much as possible. So you don't make mistakes. And yeah. I've definitely subscribed to that, but also, you know, the script, the first script that Matt and I wrote, Hell's Ladder, the mine Howard story or dive hard as we mm-hmm. also pitched it. You know, we'd read some screenplays. We'd never, we would just, I don't know, it just beginner's luck. And then the next thing we did, the Oliver Stone meets Martin Scorsese, which was a disaster. But sometimes, you know, it's just lightning in a bottle. And sometimes it can happen when people don't know anything, but they kind of, because they don't know anything, they know everything. But more often than not, it's knowing about cul-de-sacs. I don't know if that's an American term or not, but do, do you have cul-de-sacs in America? The idea, you know, well, you've got a road that's a dead end. Yeah, right. we definitely got cul-de-sacs. Yeah. Here. I yeah. live in a cul-de-sac, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> there are things called story cul-de-sacs. And, mm-hmm. you know, in every screenplay, you're making a thousand choices and each uh-huh. decision can screw the screenplay. And when you've, I see it all the time where writers have made decisions. Now, I know that it's a bad decision, because I made that decision on script 43 and it was a disaster. And there are some mm. things that you just know and they come from trial and error. You know, there are some yeah. specific decisions that you can make. There are many, many things. And it, it comes from learning what works. Some people just the geniuses and they instinctively know. Other people learn via trial and error. Yeah, I think uh, there's uh, definitely something to 
you have to be pragmatic, right? Like you can't, you have to know the rule before you can break it. I think that's kind of how I've always thought about something. Cause it's like, if you don't know the 180 rule in film, it's like the, then, and you start breaking it all the time. It's like you're, it's, it's so sloppy. And, but when you know how to break the rule, but or then you what know, about Tokyo story where it's completely broken every time. Yeah. But I think that's an, there's an intention there that, I mean, I don't think the filmmaker of that film didn't know the rule, that's right? True. He, he knew what he that's was true. doing when he broke yeah. the rule. And I think that's something, I mean, it's something with, with, uh, even with writing, any kind of writing, it's like, if you, you need to know the rules, so you know how to navigate and, it, and when you can break them. Yeah. I think that's true, true to most things in life. I read a post by Carson Reeves on Script Chatter. He said that the thing that stands out from most scripts that sell or get attention is most of them are breaking one rule or another, but they're doing it intentionally. Right. Yeah. They know what they're doing. It's not an accident. Mm -hmm. And I think then the lesser, I don't know, screenwriters will say, well, they've broken the rule. I can break it. And, Mm -hmm. and that just because it worked in, in some other script doesn't mean it's going to work in yours. Right. Kind of jumps back to what you were saying about JFK, where it's flashbacks and flashbacks. It's like, Oliver Stone knows what he's doing, like, <laughs> right? He's made, I mean, I mean, the dude made Platoon. He, he knows what he's doing. And it's like, until you've been on the ground and you have that knowledge, or, I mean, maybe it's also, it's like, it, that's crazy. It's just, I'm tired, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote Midnight Express. He wrote Scarface. He directed Salvador, which was, it's one of my favorite movies of his. Wall Street, mm-hmm. he was on a street with Wall Street, Platoon, and JFK are those movies, yeah. you know, that's a hell of a, a streak. So yeah, that's, yeah. Easy. But yeah, and I, I think the worst scripts that any writer can ever read, in my opinion, are Alien, which everyone says read for a <laughs> sense of voice. It's an absolute masterpiece. And the first couple of pages, we're talking about these sentence fragments and one word sentences, uh-huh. and it's so awesome. You try and read 50 pages of haiku and see how readable that is. It's, it, you know, you need it to vary. The tempo needs to change. And the other one is Pulp Fiction. They say, oh, I love Pulp Fiction. It's all over the place. Flashbacks. And I, no, don't read it. Don't touch Tarantino. I've, I tell all my clients, really? steer well. No, don't. You know, he's, he's a one-off. And it's something that it, his style is so distinctive that it can't be copied and it shouldn't even be attempted. I mean, you look in the 90s, all those heist movies that came out, one Mm -hmm. point after Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, it was every single film was a crime thriller about a heist that went wrong. And there are good ones. I remember things to do in Denver when you're dead. I remember thinking that was pretty. I love that movie. I love that movie. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. One of my favorite lines in all of film is I am Godzilla. You are Japan. Yes. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And 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 you just clap. Yeah. And he says your, your, your reputation was overrated and then Bichette ships him. (laughs) It's brilliant. It's a brilliant scene. Um, and Jimmy, the Saint. it's, it's Garcia at his best and slickest. I mean, Andy Garcia. Yeah. And now when, now when you say that my mind's just running through, like, you're like, um, you're right. There's probably way too many. I I just watched Ronin the other day and I'm Uh, like, Ronin's so good though. I'm like, Ronin is kind of in that vein too. Like, well, the Robert De Niro one in South France. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I saw that on my... Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. Where everyone is double-crossing everybody. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, that's almost like a Mission Impossible sort of spin, isn't it? That's That's, um, and the first Mission Impossible stands up as a decent movie. 
very complicated. Oh, yeah, the first Mission Possible is amazing. De Palma's uh, another one of my major heroes, you know, for some of the movies he's done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I did want to get a little bit into this, but what is your method to writing? Well, for instance, when you were writing more regularly, how often were you writing? Were you writing every day? And was that writing like scripts or was it just writing anything? Uh, no, it was, I was a monogamous screenwriter. I would wake up and the fact that I took the kids to school would be the only thing that would stop me from starting earlier. I, I, but often I, I consider writing would be reading a script. I found that the most inspiring thing I could do at the beginning of every day was start a script, start reading a script, a good one. And mm -hmm. that just got me to the point where I wanted to put it down and start my own or, you know, continue yeah. writing. And I, I think that, at, you know, you should be trying to read three scripts a week if you can, because oh, wow. um, I think it was Scott Myers said, you know, you read, well, even, even say one a week. If you read one script a week, you'd be reading four a month. You'd be reading, you know, 50 a year or whatever. But most writers, you ask them, I mean, how many scripts have you read in the last 12 months, guys? Uh, pro uh, probably about 10, I would say. And that's probably not a lot. It's not, probably not enough, but... I do try to read a, at least once a month, like especially if I watch a movie and I'm like, I need to know, I need to go in and read it. Like I watch, I watch way more movies. I probably watched a thousand movies in this year, yeah. but I've probably read 10 scripts because it's like once I hit a movie, like Damien Chazelle is someone I, I've read all of the movies he's written. And it's like, and I'm like, maybe, and sometimes I feel like, when I read a script and I'm, I get infatuated with it, I try to, I maybe try to cop, I copy it a little too much. Yeah. I think and that's I'm, a worry of mine. And I'm like, oh, okay. He uses a lot of parentheticals and all this other stuff. And I'm like, oops, I just did that a lot now when I'm writing my stuff. And I'm like, maybe, but I don't know, maybe that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I still, I feel like I'm still really finding my voice in a lot of ways. And I've, I mean, I've written, like I said, like a lot, I write every day. So I think I've never read a script from beginning to end. But I have I have looked at Chinatown. That's the one that I reference a lot. And then uh, There Will Be Blood. I, I look at those scripts a lot and reference them a lot. It's such a bastard format. And I say that for two reasons. One, it's it can be a real bastard to write, but it's not, it's neither a book nor is it a film. It's somewhere in between and it is so specific um, yeah. mm -hmm. and the discipline that I think it behooves all of us to, to read more of them. Um, <laughs> and, and just, so I'm not giving you a hard time saying, but you guys are also, you're watching movies, you're filmmakers. Writing is just one component of storytelling. So, you know, I'm, I'm speaking here to monogamous screenwriters, people right, who yeah. just want to write films. They don't want to tell stories visually yeah. with cameras. So, well, um, well for me, um, it's interesting because I'm taking two different approaches. I really like writing. I've been writing ever since I was a kid and really haven't stopped. And with writing, I choose to remain very ignorant. I keep myself ignorant in writing. But with film, I'm educating myself a lot and trying to really learn the format. So it's been really interesting to see the different approaches and how that manipulates one over the other and how I apply it, I guess. So I, I would suggest this, Steve. I think that this is a fascinating approach. I would say that screenplay format is so rigorous in its, you know, to, 
to write a good screenplay, the talent to do it, a lot of it is technical in terms of how you're expressing what we can see. Without writing, we would see, but I'm not going to go there. Um, but it's like learning an instrument. Yeah. And if you're a virtuoso, you can pick up the instrument and you can play by ear and then you don't need to study. But I think there are a lot of good writers who actually can't write screenplays. I have a couple of clients who are novelists and they've adapted. One guy in particular, he adapted his novel and I'm reading the first 10 pages and I'm thinking, this guy can't write. His novel must be an absolute disaster zone. I said, send me the novel. Novel's really well written. But for some reason, he's a good writer. But when it comes to writing a screenplay, it's kryptonite to his ability to write. And he's sort of suspending all the good laws of, of sentence constructions because it's a screenplay, because you don't need to do that. You just describe what happens. And yeah. I, I couldn't... You know, I'm not coming from that place. I think that screenplays need to be highly readable and shareable. And it takes a lot of technical prowess to be able to do that in my, you know, in my experience, but you might be a virtuoso, so. Oh, I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so then what, what was your, what is your method when you write? Like, uh, how do you, how do you sit down and, and begin to write and, like, for instance, Tom and I, we love to listen to music to really get us in the mood. Um, hearing you talk about reading other screenplays gets you in the mood for that. True stories. I have a massive, I am going to do a video on it, how to plunder newspapers for movie ideas. Um, I, I've got a thing about, well, particularly espionage. There are th there's a lot of research. I'm always well, less now, but I was always researching, always working, always processing. And, mm -hmm. you know, if I see an article, for instance, here's an example of an article. I actually used it. I've used this in teaching. There's an article that Pablo Escobar's, his old ranch is overrun with these hippos from Africa who he imported over. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard about these hippos? Yes. Yeah, yeah they're, they're running rampant and growing more. <laughs> right. What are they going to do with them? Because they're, they're, you know, the most dangerous animal on the African continent is not a snake. It's not an animal, obviously. It's not a, a lion. It's not a, it's Escobar's hippos. They're absolutely lethal. They're like sharks, except they can run at 40 miles an hour. They're big, very fast units, and they will rip your legs off. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, well, what's the Jaws version of Escobar's hippos? <laughs> you know, who's the hero? What yeah. is the problem? And then the, the ethical thing is, what are they going to do? Are they going to neuter these things so they die out? They're not in Africa. So, I, you know, it's, it's about unleashing creativity based yeah. often for me, it has been on a true story and then extrapolating from that. And you want a character with a problem okay. and an arc, ideally, but don't force it. And movies are about relationships. So a movie without a central relationship is, is not yet a movie. So if you're reading a newspaper article and you see that somebody's got in a conflictual situation, you want a villain and a hero, or you want the hero to have the villain inside them. You know, again, I've been watching Queen's Gambit. She is her own nemesis. Yeah, mm -hmm. she is the obstacle in her, in her story in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, so I'm looking, I'm looking for relationships and true stories. I am going to do a video, which is the five places where I plunder espionage stories and everything. <laughs> and I've got some quite interesting... There are some, if you think about newspaper articles, they've already passed the storytelling test. 
that some right. journalist mm. has gone in and said either it's a human interest story or whatever it is, and there's a title, okay, yeah. and that's that's made it. It's already been okayed for an audience, and that's why newspaper articles are often, you know, highly um, sought after because they've already got mm-hmm. the story told or the, the structure in there. Yeah. So, so Dominic, I want to just make sure that we're checking in on time and see that you're doing okay. I think I probably um, got another. 10 minutes, if that's okay. All right. Did you want to jump into to reading yes. and acting out the, yeah, the script? Let's do it. Let's do it. And right, was, is it. this the Stalker movie? Is this Pretty no. Pink meets Halloween? Because I want to read No, no, no. That's a, that's a full-length feature. This is literally something I wrote 40 minutes before I left work this morning. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, so it's going to be rough. Like, we're going to be kind about that. You know, this is hot off the oh, presses. You can- Oh, yeah, literally, yeah, I wrote no, this. Please, please rip it apart. You yeah. can rip it apart. No, 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 that's not fair. If you've only it, just it, written it, I'm not going to rip it apart. It's, oh, it's, I, I will say it's, it is written to have fun. Okay. And you'll see it, it is very weird. I like writing surreal, very weird stuff. Pipe dream. Okay, okay let's have a look at that. Yep. Interesting. So there are two characters and one kind of cameo minor character. I, uh, I don't know how you guys want to do characters. But there's Frankie and Adam. Frankie is kind of like a asshole, and Adam is a crackhead. So, okay. And what's the? Let's get the thrust of the story. Is it just a sort of scene in a room, or what's happening here? What's the? It's a scene. It's just a scene in a room. Like I said, I write these just really quick and simple, and they're just to be fun for our guests to kind of have a silly, fun time. Okay. And and the premise is these guys have robbed the bank, right? Yep. And they're and they're counting out their money, and. Th- things start to happen. Okay, the one thing I I imagine these American characters. I am not going to embarrass myself. And oh no, so no, I, you can no totally, we want your cool accent. I'll have to be Adam. I, I don't think I'm a Frankie. I feel like more. Shall I play Adam as a kind of English guy? Is that okay? Oh, that's fine. I just will warn you, Adam is. Which one is more English, Frankie or Adam? <laughs> oh man, this is tough. I would. I mean, I would say. Oh, this is tough. Which okay, one's more comedic than the other. Which one do you feel you would want to be more? Not funny. I'll be the non-comedic one. All right, so then you should be. You should read for Frankie, and then Stephen, you're definitely Adam. Sorry, buddy, you're the. Oh, crack- but I'm not funny. You're you're a crackhead. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> okay, and Tom, true. you're you're narrating, right? I'll I'll narrate, read action, and then I'll play the third surprise character. And, and what's what's my motivation, Tom? Who, who am I here? You want you know? crack? Crack. <laughs> <laughs> and Frankie, what what is what is my motivation? You are essentially trying to keep the situation together, not get caught, and escape to Mexico. Okay. So I'm a, okay, I'm a bank robber. Okay, right. Yeah. You're the younger brother that is, that has to kind of keep your older crackhead brother in check. Oh, actually, in real life, I'm more like Adam and my younger brothers. I'll, I'll just play my younger brother. There we go. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Frankie, got it. All right. So we'll start off. It's called Pipe Dream, and you guys will see why. Interior, motel room night. Locked in a dirty motel room, two brothers, Frankie and Adam, sit around counting the cash from the recent bank robbery. Adam, will you please go turn on the AC? I'm sweating bullets. Turn it off yourself. I'm still pissed off at you. Adam furrows his brow, losing count of his pile. I lost my count. We got a good score. There has to be at least another ten grand here. Why did you have to shoot that girl? I didn't appreciate the way she was looking at me. Uh, Frankie... She was blind. Well, now she can see God in heaven. Man, that's evil. Just go and turn on the AC before I blow your nuts off. 
Frankie points his .50 caliber Desert Eagle at Adam's nuts. Put that shit away right now! Frankie laughs it off, dropping the gun and laying out on the bed, making snow angels in the cache. Adam prances over to the AC. You've rewritten that, haven't you? He oh, I took, yeah, I took out every walk. I took out every walk <laughs> while we were doing the podcast. But doesn't don't you don't you see how that changes the meaning of the whole sentence? Oh, as a absolutely. oh absolutely. Yeah, it feels okay. more fun. Well, I it think we should feel- go, Yeah. Well, I, I do think we should go to Mexico, find some beach, lay on the sand, get some real cheap. Mate, you've got to interrupt Shit. me, otherwise I'm leaving Anna. I'm not going to do that line again. <laughs> We should go to Mexico, find some beach, lay on the sand, get some real cheap... Shit's broken. It's already set to high. God damn it. This heat is killing me. You got any more of that crack rock? Frankie points over to the table. There's a small plastic baggie filled with crack rocks. Adam pulls out one, shaking as he fills his pipe. You want to hit on this? No, you junky loser. Did you finish your count? You know I can't count good. On account of years of drug abuse. You stupid bastard. I just mixed the piles. Now I have to count everything out again. Adam lights the crack and takes a long drag. Hey, man, that's some quality shit. I need you to focus. Hey, I'm really bummed you shot that blind girl. Will you cut it out with the blind girl bullshit? Frankie sits up trying to sort the piles of cash. I really like this crack. Don't OD. We still need to drive to the Mexico. Adam stands up, looking down the barrel of his forty-five. You think we're gonna get some ladies? Of course. Now don't shoot yourself. Hey, should we disguise ourselves or something? I want to be a ninja turtle. Well, maybe you should shoot yourself. Frankie finishes <laughs> counting the cash on the bed. Holy hot dogs, Batman. There's over one hundred thousand dollars here. That's a lot of crack. Adam takes another drag off the crack pipe. Stop smoking that crack. We have work to do. (laughs) What work do we have to do, Frankie? Well, you may be right. We need to disguise ourselves. I'm sure the police are already looking for us. Frankie struts over to the mirror, admiring his long hair. You can't cut your hair, man. It's like part of your identity. Adam, sometimes I really wish Mum had thrown you in a wood chipper. (laughs) That would really hurt. Frankie grabs a bag of crack sitting in his pocket, sticking it in his pocket. I'm going to do some shopping. Don't leave this room. Can I watch TV? Frankie tries to turn on the old TV. Layers of dust coat the top and sides. It's broken like everything else in this piece of shit motel. What? No TV? What am I supposed to do? Adam winks and looks at Frankie's pocket. I could well... God damn, you know? mother, you are so pathetic. Frankie reaches in his pocket, pulls out a crack rock, and tosses it in the corner of the room. Hey, what did you do that for? Now go hunt for your crack, and when you find it, you can smoke, and since I'm... You can smoke, and since I'm sure you won't be able to find it, you won't be able to OD and die while I go get us some sunglasses. Oh, I'll show you. I'm gonna find it. I'm like a crack magnet. In fact... It'll find me. Adam reaches out his hand and starts moving it around, expecting the crack to float from the floor into his hand. Frankie rushes over to the door, unlocks the latch, which detaches and peels off part of the wooden door. Man, this place really is a dump. I'll be back. And again, Adam, do not leave. Adam, not paying attention, has fallen to his hands and knees looking for the crack in the wrong corner. Cut to interior motel ten minutes later. 
Adam is still looking for the crack that Frankie tossed. <laughs> he thinks he has found it, but in reality, it's a piece of dried lint. He puts it in his pipe and smokes it. Whoa, whoa, shit's, that's nasty. Adam starts coughing and rolls on the floor. He sees a cockroach. <laughs> hey there, little fella. Can you help me find my crack? Adam takes another hit off the dried lint and blows the smoke at the cockroach. The cockroach scatters off and Adam crawls on the floor after it. Oddly enough, the cockroach finds the crack and starts eating it. Hey, you bitch, that's my crack. We got to share. Sharing is caring, man. Come on now. Hey. The cockroach picks up the drugs and runs off. Frankie comes back into the room. What is this? And why are you lying on the floor like that? Frankie, my friend stole my rock. What friend? You called someone over? No, man. The roach man. The roach man. A cockroach. A cockroach stole your crack. Yeah, bro. Total bummer. Can I get that last rock? Frankie tosses a plastic grocery bag on the bed. There is no way I'm giving you any more. You're crawling around on the floor talking to stink bugs. Get your ass up. No. What did you say? I I said no. I want some crack. Frankie stops over and kicks Adam softly in the side. I will kick your ass if you don't get up right now. Frankie! Frankie kicks him multiple times. You do what I ask and I will give you the rock. Deal? Why you gotta kick me, man? That hurts. Just sorry, bro. Just look, you piss me off. I am sorry. Frankie reaches out his hand to help his brother up. Adam reaches for it and Frankie slaps his hand away. I thought you were gonna help me up. Think again. Frankie starts going through the bag, pulling out a hair trimmer and hair dye. Okay, I'm up now. Can I have that crack? I hate you sometimes. Frankie reaches in his pocket and tosses the bag of crack to Adam, who jumps with glee. <laughs> yummy, yummy, cracky for daddy. Get it in my tummy, you yummy, cracky crack. <laughs> if you sing again, I will shoot you. Adam loads the pipe. Rumbling can be heard outside. Stop. Adam holds the lighter and crack pipe, looks up to Frankie. What is that, the cops? I don't think so. Frankie pulls back the curtain, seeing no one outside. Anyone there? No one. The rumbling gets louder. Adam, not caring anymore, sparks up the crack and takes a big hit. Oh, thank you. As he exhales, the wall bursts open. Thousands of roaches (sighs) stream out of the hole. What in the- Get your shit! We need to go! You are seeing this, yeah? Adam closes his eyes. A loud crash is heard, and a giant human-sized cockroach bursts through the wall. Hey, bitch, give me a hit. (laughs) Adam, with his eyes closed and handshaking, holds out his pipe. The roach takes it and rips a huge hit. Frankie reaches for his desert eagle. The roach's antenna twitches. If you reach for that gun, I'll rip you in half. Leave the cash and crack and get out. (laughs) Can I get a hit? The roach crawls over to Adam and hands him the pipe. Maybe I need that hit. When in Rome. Adam takes a huge hit, high-fives the roach, and stumbles back to keep, his eye, to keep his eyes closed. Damn, this is hard. Dumb bastard. Frankie grabs a bag of cash and tries to run out. When he is tripped by the swarm of roaches, they start crawling all over him. He reaches in his pants and pulls out the Desert Eagle, fir- firing it madly. One of the bullets manages to hit Adam in the head, killing him instantly. Adam! Dumb bitch. Frankie, out of, out of bullets, keeps clicking his gun until it drops, becoming <laughs> devoured by roaches. Roach flies over and picks up the pipe from Adam's hand, sits on the bed, and finishes off the rock. Fade off the end. All right. <laughs> oh, so no. what do you think? What do you think, Dominic? Do I have a future? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I mean, what, what, where do I start? Um, I like the title. <laughs> Pipe Dream is a good title for the content. Um, I like the kind of Naked Lunch. Did you ever see the Naked Lunch? Yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> I think you're definitely channeling some of the Naked Lunch here. Uh, the Crack Pipe. Uh, you know, it's 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 a fun setup that you've got two characters. Obviously, you know, this is comedic, which is not my bag in terms of writing. I mean, you know, I do a lot of consulting on comedies, but um, no, I, it, it's highly trippy, gentlemen. Um, I think I was so in it. I think I'm the most miscast character of any of your... The- no, you were great. Yeah, it was amazing. You mm-hmm. sold it. No, well, that's very kind. But um, yeah, that that was a trip. That was a trip. So <laughs> I didn't expect to get that on our little Zoom call today, boys. Do you, do you think a producer, we could pitch that to a producer <laughs> and they, gonna, they would I'm pick it up? I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> It's a lot I of fun. You, I just hope you had some fun. That's all. That's, that's all. Listen, it was fun and some good lines, and um, you surprised me when you said I'll be the third character who's coming in. I'd forgotten that you were the <laughs> crack roach. I love it. So, yeah. Well, we try really hard here at TSP. Yeah, so, a- Dominic. Uh, so where can people find you if they want to reach out and all of that fun stuff? Well, YouTube is, you know, that's obviously the platform that I'm on for watching. And, you know, I do answer the comments there, but the primary way of contacting me would be on LinkedIn. But I would say this, you know, many write, I mean, this is something we haven't really got time to go into, but how to network, how to, the first thing you should not say is read my script. You know, what you're trying to do is establish a connection with another human being and not ask them to invest in you until you've kind of semi-invested in them. This is a huge topic, by the way, and it's, it's a real problem. I had a, a LinkedIn, ask someone to, you know, connect with someone on LinkedIn. They said, oh, hi, I've been writing all my life. Uh, here, you can read my novel here. Here's my podcast and here's, you know, my screenplay. And that's the first mm-hmm. interaction. And this guy, if I did everything that he gave me, that would be four hours of my day. And, oh, wow. you know, he hasn't found a way to, to, to offer something. And often you, you might think when you're approaching somebody in the industry, you might think, well, I can't do anything for them. I just need, I want, I want, I want. But you'd be surprised, particularly on social media. You know, you can, you know, if anybody shares my posts or comments or establishes a relationship with me, I'm much more likely to help them. And I'm, you know, I'm, this is not some sort of guys help me and I'll help you. It's just, this is, Something that you should think about for if you're networking with other writers on Twitter or, you know, anything like that. Or don't never ask anyone to read your script unless they're a script consultant. And obviously that's a different deal. But yeah, so reach out to me. Connect with me on um, LinkedIn. Let's talk stuff. You know, just talk about movies. Be a human being. That's the best way to reach me. I do. Have, I'm, you know, I've got like a tiny Instagram account. I've just started to do it. Like you've got to choose your platform as a creator. Oh, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, they kind of pass me by, but LinkedIn. And also I do, I post a lot of my stuff on Facebook in the screenwriting groups. So if I have a video, that's another thing. When you get into content, if you guys ever start producing video podcasts. Uh, we actually plan to, yeah. Okay, well, don't post YouTube links in the screenwriting forums. I mean, you can get some traction there, but it's much better to upload video to Facebook or LinkedIn rather than posting links. You've got to think all these platforms are selfish. What do they want? What What is their motivation? They want people to stay on the platform. So if you post a link to a Google owned company, 
to Facebook, they will not want to promote it. Whereas if you put video natively on LinkedIn or natively on Facebook, then it does get shared. And I'm, I've, I've had quite a lot of activity on LinkedIn and Facebook. So yeah, and you know, these days, if somebody asked to be my friend on Facebook, I used to take the view, oh, Facebook's for friends and family. And I just yeah. let go of that. And I just, you know, so hit me up on Facebook. Okay, I'll be sending you a, a friend request. Awesome, and thank right. you so well, much. Dominic, it's do you want to close this out like you close out your YouTube there? You, wanna, you want me to go out that way, guns blazing? If, 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 <laughs> if you want. I mean, you don't have to if you want. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Scriptfire, out. <laughs>